I will tell you how to do that. The podcast actually has a name that comes from Plutarch's, um, the source that Shakespeare used for Antony and Cleopatra, which is Plutarch's story of Antony and Cleopatra in Plutarch's Lives. Do people know about Plutarch's Lives? Is this familiar to you? Kat, what is it? I mean, I know a bunch of the different things, but like I haven't read the entirety. No one's read the entirety. Yeah. No one alive has. No one alive has. Um, Harold Bloom, who died uh, three months ago, did. But I don't think anyone alive has. I'm exaggerating. Someone alive has. Um, But say a little bit more. I mean, from what I can remember, which may not be correct, is it's just a collection of different kind of stories. That's the extent of what I know. Okay, that's good. Yeah, so what Plutarch did was he wrote a long book called Parallel Lives where he was interested in the biographies of um, both Greek and Roman um, leaders, military leaders, political leaders, and so on. And um, he would parallel a Roman life with a Greek life um, to show what was similar. Well, basically, in a way, it's the first time that um, you got the idea that history repeats itself. And um, so that rep- the reason that it's interesting that history should repeat itself is that that means that history has lessons for the present. Um, because if the present is now repeating the past, of course, we never think such things right now. There's no political leaders around in the world now who remind us of anyone in the 1930s. But if they did, <laughs> we might take lessons from the 1930s um, and think about um, stuff to avoid and stuff to promote. And so uh, uh, in Shakespeare's lifetime, about 20 years or so, before he wrote Antony and Cleopatra, um, there was a great translation of Plutarch that was done into Elizabethan English. That is the same English that Shakespeare uh, spoke and wrote in. And um, so... That's one of the sources of Antony and Cleopatra. It's North's translation of um, Plutarch's story of, of Mark Antony and his relationship with Cleopatra. So we will read that. Um, what this course is about, just to tell you, is partly going to be determined in what you guys get interested in. And so I'm going to um, give you readings kind of... I'm, I'm going to give you the next few weeks' readings um, over Latte, which you can log into by using Duo Push. Um, um, in the next day or two. But after that, we're partly going to see what people are interested in. So just to give you a very basic idea of the course, um, we'll be reading some of the stuff that Shakespeare wrote in order to write the two plays, Antony and Cleopatra and Macbeth. We'll do Macbeth first and then Antony and Cleopatra. But when we're doing Antony and Cleopatra, we will be doing it thinking about Macbeth the whole time. The reason being that Shakespeare seems to have written those plays simultaneously. That is, that um, he did, we tend to think that he wrote um, plays one after another, and he kind of tended to write plays one after another. He wrote like two a year, which is a lot. Some people thinking, think reading two a year is a lot, but we're reading two in a semester. Um, but um, we don't know that for sure. He was doing a whole lot of other writing also. But it, se- but it does seem that Antony and Cleopatra were written simultaneously, um, the way you guys might write papers for more than one class um, with 24 hours left at the end of the semester. Um, and what that means then is that we can see really, really, really interesting echoes between the plays. If you had to put them, 
in a chronological order, you would probably put Macbeth before Antony and Cleopatra. At least that's how Shakespeare's contemporaries did it. Um, but it seems pretty clear that he um, was not finished with Macbeth while he was writing Antony and Cleopatra, or perhaps even better, not finished with Antony and Cleopatra while he was writing Macbeth. And you will see allusions to the same thing. One of the things that Macbeth complains about is that he feels to himself that he is like Antony when Antony is going against Octavius Caesar. Do people know who Octavius Caesar is? He's often called Caesar in the play. Um, remind me your name? Yeah. Alex. Alex. Yeah, so who's Octavius Caesar? Um, he's Julius Caesar's nephew, I believe. Great, great, great nephew, great but nephew, then but also... They took over from Julius Caesar and started sort of... He was the first emperor of Rome yes. as opposed to... I can't remember, the, the Republic. The Republic, yeah. Yeah, so when you, when, you, um, when you come to reread The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbon, um, the Roman Empire basically starts with Augustus Caesar, where we get the name of the month what? October, no. August. August, yes. Um, and July comes from who? Julius. Julius Caesar. Yeah, so the months of July and August, that's why September, which means seventh month, comes ninth, and October, which means eighth month, comes tenth, and November, ninth, ninth month, comes eleventh, and December? Twelfth. Comes twelfth, but it means? Tenth. Right. Because those two months were interpolated by Augustus, one after Julius Caesar, um, his uncle who adopted him and therefore from whom, in ways that Antony and Cleopatra will partly explore, um, he inherited the leadership of Rome and started the Roman Empire. So up until Julius Caesar, Rome was a republic, from the time, actually, of Coriolanus to the time of Julius Caesar, Rome is a republic. After that, it becomes an empire and um, lots of uh, members of the Roman Republic, like maybe most famously Cicero, are assassinated in order to establish the empire. Um, so in the play, Octavius is one of three people who are officially running Rome after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Um, anyone know what Shakespeare play contains the assassination of Julius Caesar? Can you guess? Right, yes. Or is um, Jackie Gleason, anyone know who Jackie Gleason was? Oh, how sad. You've got to, there's, there's a great Paul Newman movie called The Hustler with Jackie Gleason as a pool player, so you should at least know about that. Jackie Gleason was one of the great comedians. Um, the Honeymooners um, is probably his most famous TV show. Fat. What? Oh, he was fat. I thought you were saying fat to the Honeymooners. I said which, he was fat. Yes, he was. Um, the Honeymooners is great. You should watch it on MeTV or whatever, um, TV Land or wherever you can watch um, old TV. It's one of the great shows of the 50s before TV got really rotten until the 90s, except for Star Trek. Um, and um, Jackie Gleason um, uh, also had a variety show, and he would, he would um, have funny jokes in it, one of the funniest, no doubt, being... Um, someone coming, someone saying that Shakespeare was writing a new play called Julius, catch her quickly before she gets away. And this person's 
Hamilton's advice was you have to shorten the title. So instead of catch her quickly before she gets her gets away, it should be Julius sees her. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great one. Maybe it was Monty Python or one of those other comedy troops who did uh, Julius Caesar on an Aldous lamp. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> Finally, something hilarious. Yeah, um, what Samuel Johnson said, who's Samuel Johnson, anyone? No? Yes, Nicole, you should know. My God, you should know. <laughs> he wrote a biography. Uh huh. Of another author. Okay. <laughs> he wrote lots of biographies. He wrote a book called Lives of the Poets. We looked at, in the 18th century class, um, what he had to say about Rochester and what he had to say about Pope um, and what he had to say about Gray. Um, he was the first developer of a, of a real dictionary in the English language. Uh, Johnson's Dictionary is one of the great 18th century works, and Johnson um, did it all alone, working nonstop for. Um, nine years, and the dictionary is the source of all other English language dictionaries. So any dictionary you use ultimately derives from Johnson. He was the first person to put quotations in a dictionary. And so to define a word, he would often have a quotation which used the word um, often from Shakespeare. Um, he also did an edition of Shakespeare's plays that we'll look at and wrote a great preface to um, that edition, and he loved Shakespeare, but he wasn't slavishly in love with him, and he complained a lot about things that Shakespeare did, and one of the things he complained about was how often Shakespeare um, punned, and how Shakespeare, like if there was a pun available, Shakespeare would punce on it, no, sorry, pounce on it. Um, and um, what he said about um, Shakespeare's um, propensity for punning was the word he uses is quibble. So a quibble is, you've, you've talked about quibbling on the meaning of a word, like um, yeah, a minor argument based on um, someone says to you goodbye, and um, you say, wait, you're breaking up with me just because they said goodbye, and then um, it turns out no, they're just saying that they want you to be um, redeemed by the Savior, because that's, as you all know, what goodbye means, right? God buy ye, um, God redeem you. Um, so, they, so you have an argument with someone over a word, and when the argument is over something trivial, the argument may not be trivial, um, but when it's over something trivial, um, the trivial thing is called a quibble. But usually it's about the exact meaning of a word that you're using. So Dr. Johnson, as he's always called, um, because he got an honorary degree because of the amazing stuff that he'd written. Um, and also because there's the, a great, 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 great biography of him called The Life of Dr. Johnson. Um, <coughs> he, what he wrote about Shakespeare and his um, propensity for punning was, a quibble was for him the fatal Cleopatra for which he was for which he lost kingdoms and was content to lose them. So um, that, in a sense, is Johnson saying that Shakespeare's relation to his own language was like Antony's relationship to Cleopatra, um, something that would attract you away <coughs> from the really important thing that you were doing, 
for in, in Antony's case, being one of the three rulers of Rome and of the Roman um, territory, the Roman um, um, uh, nation. For Shakespeare, it would be writing a Shakespeare play, writing a Shakespeare tragedy. So one of the things that will happen, those of you who've read Romeo and Juliet know that Tybalt, when he is um, fatally wounded, <coughs> makes jokes about the fact that he's fatally wounded. He doesn't say, oh, I'm dying and have a really um, momentous death scene. He cracks some jokes about it. Some of you will know that in Richard II, who does the same thing? John of Gaunt, yes, who, as he's dying, starts cracking lots of jokes about his name. Gaunt as the grave, gaunt for the grave. Ha, 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 isn't that a good one? And um, this felt wrong to people who'd read a lot of classical tragedy. There are no puns in Sophocles when people are dying. Um, there are no puns in Aeschylus when people are murdering their husbands or their mothers. Um, but there are lots of puns in Shakespeare. And um, that's either, if you think like Johnson, that's a bug, or if you think the way a lot of people do now, it's a feature. That is, that what happens in Shakespeare, and in Shakespearean tragedy especially, is that things get wilder as tragedies progress. A tragedy, you could say, or a Shakespearean tragedy, this is maybe not so true about classical tragedy, but a Shakespearean tragedy is an excursion into wildness. Um, there's a concept in psychoanalysis called extravagance. I shouldn't say in psychoanalysis because that's misleading. Um, there's a branch of psychoanalysis, um, so don't just think Freud and Jung and Oedipus, that's the Sophocles branch. Um, but there's a branch of psychoanalysis called existential psychoanalysis, which is actually based on existentialism. Is that, that's like as old as Jackie Gleason. If I say existentialism, do you have like a nodding acquaintance? You just kind of nod? Um, or do you know more than that about it? Yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I know a little bit of it. I know that it was, um, I think that, wasn't it Camus who mm -hmm. was, was existentialist? Yeah, it was, it was sort of the idea of our or at least what he talked about was the idea of like any given person's place within like the whole of existence. And so like what, what he was is talking about is, is a, uh, way to, um, a way to interpret how meaningless everything seems mm -hmm. because of how big and, and, ex and extravagant, I guess, that everything is. Nice. Good. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's basically existentialism is like, how did I get to be? And um, the, the great word for it that the sort of kind of founder of existentialism, Martin Heidegger, used is the word thrownness. That is, that you find yourself at some point in early childhood thrown into the world, um, thrown the way a ball is thrown. Here you are. Um, you, don't you, you, don't, you don't recall the throwing. How could you? That would be your conception and your gestation. But at some point, you are aware that you are in a world, that you exist and that the world exists, that there is this thing which is being itself or existence. And you're just thrown into this world. And for Heidegger and for the existentialist psychoanalyst and for the other, the other great existentialist is Sartre, who was um, Camus' frenemy, um, the um, experience of just 
finding yourself being, finding that you exist, knowing that your existence is finite, that existence actually is something that you can be aware of because it doesn't have to be that way, because there's also nothingness to um, talk about Sartre's um, uh, great opposition, being and nothingness, that um, you are thrown into the world. So what existent so the great existentialist psychoanalyst, um, if this were 40 years ago, you would have heard of Rollo May, but no one has heard of Rollo May, is that right? You have. Um, all right, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, say more. Well, very long time ago, so uh, it's fuzzy, but um, it was assigned in an acting class in theater. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's terrific. Mm -hmm. By JBJ? Adrian Christensen. Oh, okay. Did yeah. you mean who taught the class? Yeah. Yeah, Adrian Christensen. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, that's great. I should talk to her about it. Um, we have no idea what our colleagues are up to until students say. Um, so uh, Rollo May was, th th there's a Swiss psychoanalyst whom Rollo May knew and, and to some extent was um, following named Ludwig Binswanger, and he has an essay on what he calls extravagance. And extravagance, the root meaning of extravagance, the um, um, etymology of the word is to wander, that is like when you're a vagrant, you're a wanderer, um, it's to wander outside, to wander beyond boundaries. So for him, the experience of extravagance is an experience of being in trouble, being in a place where you cannot find your way back to stability, where you are lost in the woods of the world, and um, you cannot find your way back. So for Binswanger, it was partly the task of the psychoanalyst to help the person lost within extravagance to find a way back to a life that they could feel comfortable in. But it's an acknowledgment that the experience of extravagance is something that threatens all of us, that we are all, could all, under certain pressures, in certain situations, find ourselves within a wild region from which we can't return. And that's what Shakespeare's tragedies tend to be about. Characters who begin in a reasonably secure place and then, in the course of the tragedy, go to a place of extravagance. And that wildness, um, how many people have read Henry IV Part Two? Um, okay, do you recall um, what Hal says about his father when he dies, when his father dies? It's fine if you don't. There's no reason you should. Um, he says, my father has gone wild into his grave. So Henry IV dies, and um, his death, which is also full of a kind of mad madness, and some of which is punning, his death is represented explicitly as wildness. Um, wildness is what you find in King Lear when King Lear goes out on the heath, when King Lear um, then later um, plucks and decorates himself with flowers. It's what Edgar does in King Lear. 
So that move into wildness, that's the move of extravagance. And one way that you can do it is by having, if you're Shakespeare, is having language get wilder as characters enter into a kind of existential extravagance. And that wildness of characters is um, something that you'll see in many, many different ways, but one way that you'll see it is in punning. Um, so when Johnson complains that a pun is for Shakespeare a fatal Cleopatra, uh, Johnson is not on Cleopatra's side in Antony and Cleopatra. One of the things we have to think about in this course is, and I'll tell you what the great question in Antony and Cleopatra is, um, is, is Antony right or is he wrong to be so devoted, if that's the right word, it's not the right word, so obsessed with, so committed to, so unable to break with Cleopatra. So the standard reading has always been that this is Antony's tragedy, and the tragedy is that he was too bewitched by, Cleo, by Cleopatra. Um, he says that she, like a right gypsy, hath beguiled me to the very heart of loss. Do you know why he calls her a gypsy? Well, aren't, isn't like the class, the sort of older interpretation of gypsies that they were like, um, I guess, uh, people who did sort of like, like conjuring tricks yeah. and stuff like that? Yeah, so, they, so the idea was that in Shakespeare's day, in the early 17th century, um, gypsies were actually people who were really good at um, uh, tricking people. Yeah, like and fortune telling. Is that fortune telling, three card Monty, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, or the, um, the, the sixth, 17th century equivalent of three-card Monty. Three, three halfpenny Monty. Um, but the word gypsy, etymologically, yeah. Does it have anything to do with Egypt? It does. <laughs> um, so if you guys have read, or are you watching, I watched the first episode. I liked it but didn't love it, um, His Dark Materials. Um, John Faw and Fodder Corum, who do they belong to? No, you're not watching his art materials? What do you do with your time? Read? <laughs> no, no one's but, but I don't watch that. <laughs> and you haven't read his art materials? No, not the... Isn't that like the Golden Compass? Yes. Stuff like that? I have not read it, but it was very famous when I was, in, uh, when I was young. Okay, it's as good as things get. Um, I mean, it's really, really, really good. It's not just... Not, I, I, don't, I don't like saying just when I'm um, preceding the words young adult literature but some people think, oh, just young adult literature. It's not. It's as good as YA literature gets, which is to say pretty much as good as anything published in the last 25 years gets. Um, so it's just great. Anyhow, it takes place in a parallel universe, and in that parallel universe, um, the, there are characters who are called Egyptians, and they are the equivalent of what in our Oxford people would call gypsies. It was believed in Shakespeare's day and believed, I think, until the 18th or 19th century that um, people called gypsies had Egyptian origin. That turns out not to be true. Um, they probably have some subcontinental origin and um, ethnically. Uh, they don't come from Egypt. They come from India. Um, but they, they were believed to come from Egypt. So Antony's little joke there, it's kind of a pun or kind of a conceptual pun, is that Cleopatra has um, beguiled him 
and she did it the way gypsies did in Shakespeare's day, or at least the way they were said to in Shakespeare's day. But where she beguiled, but she's an Egyptian, and like a right Egyptian, like a right gypsy, she hath beguiled me to the heart of loss. So a beautiful, beautiful phrase, the heart of loss. And um, a phrase that might be a complaint. That is, I was tricked by her. I have lost everything because I was tricked by her. So one thing you have to think about reading Antony and Cleopatra is whether um, that is the right reading of the play is that Antony failed to have the strength of character to resist Cleopatra, or whether you should see the play as the tragedy which the title tells you of Antony and Cleopatra, both their tragedies, and whether it's not actually um, the great thing about that tragedy that Antony does kiss away kingdoms for Cleopatra, that that's what makes for Antony's greatness and also um, makes for what might be Cleopatra's even greater, more profound greatness than Antony's as well. But the play stages an argument between super-efficient Octavius Caesar, who is extraordinarily good at going right for what he wants until he can become the first Roman emperor and the person who ushers in 200 years of peace, the Augustan age, and what follows it is a time of universal peace um, pretty much in Rome and, and in all the territory, which is the largest territory in the world that a single country had ever commanded. Um, and all of that was a place of peace. Um, so whether ultimately Antony should have been more like Octavius or more like himself, that's a real question in Antony and Cleopatra and something to think about. Um, I mentioned Johnson here partly because some of what we're going to be doing is reading late 18th and early 19th century reactions to Shakespeare. So again, just to give you a very quick idea, do people know who Nahum Tate is? I know some of you do. Um, Cassie? Yeah, he's the guy who wrote the bad version of King Lear, right? He was mm -hmm. like a critic and a contemporary playwright of Shakespeare, maybe a little bit later, I guess. Yeah, he was um, later. Later. Um, who like loved Shakespeare, but specifically thought that King Lear and some of the other tragedies like didn't end the way they should, so he wrote a version of King Lear that has just like a happy ending and is very bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so what Tate did, so what happened was, just to give you a little bit of um, English history here, is that there was a Puritan revolution in England. Is this familiar to people at all? And um, in, which started in uh, the early 1640s. And the Puritans um, controlled Parliament. They didn't like the king, who was um, not a Puritan. Um, and they didn't like the people who liked the king. Um, and so there was a revolution, and at first it looked like there would be some kind of compromise, but um, ultimately there was no compromise, and the king was executed by parliament. 
and if you visit London, you can actually see the place um, where uh, King Charles I makes his last speech before his beheading, um, in which he says that it's very unfair, um, but he says it not in full caps and in much more eloquent terms. Um, and then um, the Puritans ran England until 1660. Um, basically, Parliament and then Oliver Cromwell, who was the leader of Parliament, ran England um, after the Civil War came to an end. But by 1660, he had died. His son wasn't doing such a good job as the person now running England. And the English people decided that um, Kexit, as we could call it, that is King Exit, um, was not such a good idea after all. And so they invited Charles's son, Charles II, who'd been in exile in France, back to England, and that's called the Restoration. So there is the first English Revolution, which starts around 1641 and um, ends with the beheading of King Charles in 1649, and then with what's called the Commonwealth that goes on until 1660. Shakespeare died when, anyone? 1616. So we're now talking about 44, the restoration occurs 44 years after Shakespeare's death. Um, Charles II becomes King of England. The important thing for our purposes is that the Puritans, a little bit like um, Puritanical um, um, uh, groups that run countries now, what they did when they got into power was they closed all the theaters in England because theater was a bad thing because people went to theaters and they thought about sex and they thought about, um, they fell in love with fictional characters and they didn't think about God all the time. And um, so they closed the theaters and there were no, um, no plays performed in England for nearly 20 years. And what that meant was that there were no playwrights writing plays in England. Um, it's a, that's a very slight exaggeration because people were writing plays to be read rather than to be performed. But there was no theater in England for about 20 years. Then when Charles II was restored, how many people have thought about taking class in restoration comedy or restoration drama? Okay. I was in theater texts last semester, and so it was like kind of a broad overview, but we covered them. Okay, yeah. So the reason it's called restoration then is why? Um, because it happened like after the restoration of the monarchy, when like Charles II went back into power and he made like theater legal again, basically, and kind of brought the French form of theater back over to England. Yeah. So Charles and his court had been in France watching all sorts of sophisticated French theater, all in prose, a lot of it in prose. Um, and it was um, the, the, new, the, the newest and the most modern thing. And now um, he gets back to England, and he brings a lot of people who've been in exile with him in France, and reopens the theaters, but there are no plays to put on except these clunky old black and white and silent plays written by Shakespeare um, before the invention of Zoom cameras and, um, and um, CGI. So um, now it's time to do remakes as well as new plays. So the new plays are what you usually study in Restoration Theater um, classes, but there are also remakes of Shakespeare. 
And so Nahum Tate does the first one. He rewrites King Lear, um, keeping Shakespeare's language whenever he can, but changing it whenever it's good in order to make it something worse so that it will fit with modern tastes. Um, but he's not the only one. There are tons of really, um, some of them very sophisticated restoration writers who are rewriting Shakespeare. Um, the greatest of all is John Dryden. And Dryden does a rewrite of Antony and Cleopatra called All for Love, which we will read um, in this class. We'll just spend a day or two on it. It's actually pretty good. Um, it's not in Cleopatra, but it's pretty good. And um, so there is a new version of Shakespeare that is like maybe a little bit like going to see the movie version of Les Mis, or maybe it's. Has, did anyone see Cats? No. I so want. You saw it? The movie version of Les Mis is much better comparatively than Cats to the stage version. Yes. The movie version of Les Mis was eh, but the movie version of Cats was hard. Did you see it? Uh, I've seen enough of it to know, and I've everybody and everybody says it. The yeah, no. version of Cats is just as horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. It's just not that it's great. Horrific. It's horrific. No, it's not. No, it's I... not horrible. It's just that it just did not have enough good songs to hold the music. No, there are a few. It's just a musical where cats introduce themselves and then one dies. Exactly. Yeah, I'm very well aware of that. But at least the music. But at least the music in some ways was acceptable. No, but they shouldn't have made a movie out of something that literally. Has no plot. It's just cats singing in a dumpster. But it was popular. Enough, it was popular <laughs> enough that you might as well make a movie. But it was a, it was a bad movie. I'm not arguing. It wasn't going to be a good movie ever. It was. It could have been a better movie than it was. Though. Wait, did you see it? Yes, there was someone who had the unique experience of actually seeing it. It was bad. Um, but was it, was, it like delightfully bad? Um, so I was really. I'm a big fan. Like of bad movies, I will like go out of my way to see them, including seeing them in theaters, because I think that's a really fun experience. Yeah. Um, and it, it was just as horrifying as every, like all the reviews said it was, but it, it like lost its like, I don't know, like after the first like 20 minutes, you'd sort of seen as much of the bad CGI, not that the CGI gets better, but like it stays pretty consistently about the same amount of bad, so like that sort of wears off, and it is just like, I agree with what's been said, it's not a good musical to have made a movie of if they weren't going to try to give it a plot, because they like, it's, it's just boring, it's very boring, oh. and some of the performances by like actors and actresses who are very talented, are just like horrifically bad. So there's like my Judy Dench. Hat. All right. If you ever have nothing to do on an airplane and you want to be like, I don't know, there's a very and you want the flight to seem longer. There's a very, <laughs> yeah. there's a very scary scene that I think's been like leaked on social media pretty effectively. So spoilers for cats, but um, there's a pretty scary sequence where it's like Rebel Wilson who is Jenny, like, the, the cat whose name starts with, like, it's, like, polka dots or something like that, um, who, like, does a little act, like a circus act with cockroaches, but the cockroaches have, like, human faces, and then he, like, eats the cockroaches, and it's very upsetting. So that's sort of, like, the peak, but that's, like, the second musical number. So it's like Cats meets a bug's life. It's very upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> you, wait, so is it a cat in disguise? No, it's also bad. Like, the songs are oh, not good. The songs yeah. are not catchy. Yeah. 
catchy at all, and I'm sure that they like Not it's poetry. That, sure like, that is true of the original music. Yeah, no, I believe there are only like two good songs. Yeah. That's why it's bad. It's not bad necessarily because it doesn't have a plot. It's bad because the music doesn't hold it up. Like I think that that's there are there are musicals with great music that don't have that much of a plot, but this did not have great music or that much of a plot. They should have just released the two songs like on an album. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. They don't need to have a movie. Well, at any rate, <laughs> that's what a lot of Restoration Shakespeare was like. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks. So, um, but the t but it um, really did fit with Restoration tastes, and um, for some Shakespeare plays, they weren't performed again. King Lear, most notoriously, they weren't performed again the way Shakespeare wrote them until the end of the 19th century. So we're talking about almost 150 years of people not really seeing Shakespeare the way Shakespeare wrote it. Um, one example of this is, anyone seen the Laurence Olivier um, movie version of Richard III? Um, it's in color. Um, that version of Richard III is actually partly restoration. He used, um, it doesn't follow, it follows Shakespeare okay well, um, but whenever things are confusing in Shakespeare to a modern audience, he's actually using a restoration rewrite of Richard III for some of the movie. Um, so if you ever have to take an exam on Richard III, read it. Don't, um, don't try and use the movie as a crutch for studying. Um, so tips you can use. Um, but what that meant was that at the end of the 19th century, I mean, sorry, at the end of the 18th century, um, around the year 1800 or so, um, just at the time that Romanticism, which is the uh, greatest literary movement of the last three or four hundred years, is um, beginning, um, the Romantic writers, um, people like Wordsworth and Shelley and Coleridge, uh, Coleridge most famous for what, anyone? Wasn't Coleridge the guy who came up with the quote of the, the eternal finite mind? The All right. Yeah, the, the the, 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 it's whatever it is. The Almost. Something of the... Oh the repetition of the in finite the finite mind, mind in of the, the eternal act of creation that I am, something like that. Yeah, no, the, the repetition infinite, of... In, what? In the infinite I am. Of the infinite I am, yeah, the eternal act of creation of the infinite yeah, that I am, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of the infinite I am, how do you guys know that? Uh, John, John Burton. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it, it is the repetition in the finite mind of the infinite I am. Um, yeah, so that, that's uh, Coleridge um, being prosy. Um, he also is famous for the phrase, the willing suspension... Of yes. <laughs> Are you disbelieving it? Whoa! Whoa, I have to suspend my disbelief when I hear you say that. That's incredible. Yeah, um, the, the famous phrase from Coleridge is the willing suspension of disbelief that constitutes poetic faith. Um, and so that, that phrase has become a um, cliche or at least a touchstone in English, the willing suspension of disbelief. Um, poetry, what's he most famous for? The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Um, it is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. Um, the mariner kills the albatross, um, which is hung about, it's about his neck, which is why people talk about having an albatross hung around their necks. 
Um, that comes from the Rhyme Age Mariner. So Coleridge was a great critic and a great poet and a great abuser of opium. And um, he's not the only great abuser of opium that we're going to be reading in this class. Um, we're also going to be reading a great essay by uh, Coleridge's friend Thomas De Quincey, um, called um, uh, on, who wrote a, a fam whose most famous book is called Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Um, but uh, De Quincey spent some time complaining that Coleridge was hooked on opium, and in order to write these things, De Quincey, who was um, jonesing and really had to do some work, was eating a lot of opium and um, complaining about Coleridge. Kubla Khan was an opium dream on Coleridge's part. part. So if you, you know the poem in Xanadu, did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree? So that is, um, he said that was a dream that he had while on opium. And um, then he woke up from his dream, and the entire poem was in his mind, and he just took it down. Um, so Coleridge um, was one of the uh, first people. De Quincey was another. William Hazlitt, who we will also read, is another, uh, who wrote about Shakespeare more based on reading than seeing Shakespeare plays. But what they were basically saying is Shakespeare, another one is Charles Lamb, uh, that Shakespeare uh, had written these unbelievably great plays that had kind of gotten lost in their revisions for the theater, um, but that you had to go back to the original Shakespeare. It wasn't the case that people weren't reading Shakespeare. They were. Um, and as I say, Samuel Johnson did an edition of Shakespeare. But in his edition, um, in his notes on King Lear, for example, he says that the death of Cordelia so shocked him when he first read the play that he couldn't stand rereading it until he had to um, uh, edit it for his edition of Shakespeare's works. And he says, and the public agrees with me. Um, the public so infinitely prefers Tate's version to the original, and they're right. Tate's version is um, what you want from King Lear and not the original. And he's wrong that they're right. And uh, what happens at the beginning of the 19th century, end of the 18th century, is that the Shakespeare that we think about as Shakespeare, the Shakespeare who's written the plays that we study, that we read, that we some of us get obsessed with. Um, it's the romantics, the romantic critics, um, some of whom are also poets, but not all of whom are also poets, um, who are rediscovering what it was that Shakespeare was doing, and who are also intensely um, um, influenced by what Shakespeare is doing. Um, to go back to the idea of punning, there's a word that appears in Macbeth, we're going to be talking about this um, a decent amount, that doesn't appear in Shakespeare, or um, really only once in Shakespeare, before he writes Macbeth, and then starts appearing all over the place in Macbeth. The word is equivocation. Um, does anyone remember where that word, any place in Macbeth, where it comes up? So oh, it's the, uh, the porter, right? So the, the porter uses the word, good. And De Quincey has an essay that we're going to read called On the Knocking of the Gate in Macbeth. A great essay, because what people thought in, um, before De Quincey wrote the essay was that Shakespeare couldn't have written that scene, that the knocking of the gate in Macbeth was just so wrong 
um, that here you have this play about um, how many people, I should just ask, I should have asked this at the start, but this is the start. How many people have read Macbeth at least once? Um, okay, so for those who haven't, that it'll, um, this will be an intense introduction to Macbeth. And for those who have, it'll be, yay, you get to read it again. Um, how many people have read Anne and Cleopatra at least once or seen it? Um, okay, so um, for my money, and this isn't, I don't feel this way every day, but I feel this way more days than I don't, um, Antony and Cleopatra is Shakespeare's greatest play. Um, and so um, I'll try to sell it. Um, um, yeah, I think I think I think you'll find it amazing. Um, in Macbeth, after so this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler. Has anyone not seen it either? So is there anyone for whom Macbeth is entirely new? Okay, so in Macbeth. Um, after Macbeth has killed Duncan, there's a knocking um, of the gate, and um, Macbeth um, wishes, he says, wake Duncan with thy knocking, I would thou couldst. That is, he's already regretting what he's just done. Um, but that knocking then um, gets, rouses the porter, who um, says a whole lot of ridiculously funny things about um, how late at night it is and why is this knocking going on and how when people drink too much um, they have to go out and check their cell phones and um, all sorts of things like that. And yeah, he uses the word, do you remember the line? Uh, he's introducing the people in hell mm -hmm. uh, and he says, here's a great equivocator. Good. Yeah. Um, later on, Macbeth himself will talk about the equivocation of the fiend. Anyone remember how that line goes? The equivocation of the fiend. Fiend, fiend means devil. When we, when we say, you fiend to someone, it's like saying, you devil. And I'm sure you guys say that all the time to each other, right? You fiend. Um, people used to in like 30s movies. Um, there you go. Um, but fiend actually does mean devil. Um, and so the equivocation of the fiend means the equivocation of the devil, or of a devil, if not Satan himself. The equivocation of the fiend who lies like truth. So that is a really interesting line, the equivocation of the fiend who lies like truth. It goes back to a biblical observation um, that the devil can quote scripture if it suits him. That is, that it's possible to find um, justification in the Bible for anything. Um, and the devil can always find justification for evil acts or for encouraging you to do evil acts. Um, and but in Macbeth, the word that's used is equivocation, the equivocation of the fiend who lies like truth. What do you think equivocation literally means? It doesn't quite mean, the, when we say we feel equivocal about something, it, it comes from that meaning, but it's not quite what it's meaning in the 17th century. How would equivocation be lying like truth? Isn't it something that's technically true, but 
it, it operates to mislead. Exactly. So what equivocation is meaning in the 17th century is that you're saying something that's technically true but is intentionally misleading. So, you know, uh, there are lots of technically true things that I can say um, that would be extremely misleading if, for example, I were to say, um, you know, I saw the English department administrator today and she was sober. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Destruction. <laughs> that would be misleading. <laughs> because you would think that it was surprising. Otherwise, why would I say it? But it's not surprising. Um, I don't think she drinks at all, ever. Um, but so that's, that's a kind of equivocation. Um, in Macbeth, the great equivocation is that um, no man of woman born shall harm Macbeth. Do people know how that works? What's the equivocation? What is it? Yeah. No, no sorry. Uh, these glasses, people don't know who I'm looking at. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, uh, remind me your name. I'm Alex. Alex, um, yes. Macduff was a C-section, basically. Yeah. And uh, so no, he was technically not a woman born because he was taken. He was... He says he's pride out of untimely pride out of my mother. It's something like that. Yes, is out of line. his mother's womb, untimely um, wrenched. Exactly, that's the line. And yeah, so he was a C-section baby. Yeah. Um, do you know why it's called a C-section? Cesarean. Cesarean after. Caesar. Yeah. So Caesar actually, um, the word um, means to cut, and some people think that Julius Caesar was called Julius Caesar because he was born by what we now call a cesarean section. Um, but it, but for Macduff, it means um, he wasn't born of a woman. Um, but Macbeth understands the um, guarantee that no man of woman born can harm Macbeth as meaning what, Nicole? Oh, so I understand the question. If Caesar means to cut, is that where scissors comes from? I don't think so. I mean, um, probably through Indo-European, but not directly. Okay. Um, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a word that, that comes directly from it, but, but I can't write off. Um, yeah? Because it like implies that no one can harm him because like everyone has to be born, so he thinks like no one can kill him. Yeah. So it's not that everyone has to be born, it's that everyone, um, everyone has a woman as a mother. So, so he thinks it means no man who has a human mother, whose mother was a woman, can harm him. And he thinks born is just a metaphorical way of saying... Um, of describing a relationship between a human being and his or her mother. Um, but it turns out that the word born is the crucial word. And you'll see Shakespeare is actually really interesting in the way he first buries and then unburies that possibility. If you look at the way the word born is rhymed, um, sometimes it's sometimes it's at the end of a line and then it's focused on because it's a rhyme. Sometimes it isn't and then you don't notice it as much. But no man of woman born, Macbeth takes to mean no human being can harm him. But that's not what it means. So that's an equivocation. Um, it's a kind of conceptual pun, which is what an equivocation is, a conceptual pun. Um, anyone guess the etymology of equivocation? It's an easy one. Yeah, Kat. To be equal to 
equal if it comes from Latin, then you have equi, which is equal, and then wokat, which right. is calling. So. Yeah. Okay, so it's so calling it is equal, calling them equal. Or it is saying it to um it can simply mean to speak, to vocalize, um, to say something. So equivocation means that you're saying two things simultaneously, that it's equal either way that you look at it, it's equal. Um so you could be saying um no human being can harm Macbeth, or you could be saying no person who underwent vaginal birth can harm Macbeth. And an equivocation actually contains two meanings, both of which are equally, that's the equip part of it, equally possible, um, but not intended to show that it has two meanings. So that someone will assume it is univocal or univocal is the correct pronunciation but univocal means yeah it's perfectly straightforward what's being said and equivocation always should look as though it's univocal in order for you to get away with it and the idea was as you'll see that equivocation was something that Catholics practiced in England so you're not supposed to lie according to Catholic teaching. Um, but English Protestants are the proto-Puritans and the soon-to-be Puritans are very strongly anti-Catholic. Do people know about this? That, um, again, this, this is important to Macbeth and important to James I, um, who is the king that Macbeth is a kind of valentine for. It's a really weird Valentine. You don't want people giving you Macbeth as a Valentine, <laughs> unless you're James the First. Then it's okay. Um, but um, what had happened was there was a really, really bloody struggle before Shakespeare was born between Catholics and Protestants in England. And um, Henry the Eighth, who is the last or really the second to last monarch that Shakespeare ever wrote about in a play. Um, he wrote a play on Henry VIII. At the end of Henry VIII, a little baby is born, and that baby turns out to be, anyone guess? Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, who is queen when Shakespeare is born and queen until Shakespeare is in um, his um, almost 40. Um, so Henry VIII because he wasn't allowed to do all the divorcing that he cared to enjoy, um, decided to join with the, those who were protesting the Catholic Church um, uh, from Luther on in Northern Europe and to make England, to take England out of the Roman Catholic um, Church and the Roman Catholic Communion. So Henry VIII begins a kind, if, if, if um, um, you guys have seen Wolf Hall. This, that's partly what it's about. Um, Henry VIII begins a sort of um, Protestant version of England, but his daughter, um, who becomes queen, Queen Mary, known named after a drink um, as Bloody Mary, um, is very strongly Catholic. She was supposed to marry um, the um, uh, the the heir to the Spanish throne 
Um, she's very, very strongly Catholic. Um, Spain thinks that with this marriage they can make England Catholic again. And what she does is she has all the Protestants who had done well under her father executed, hence the bloody in the epithet applied to her. Um, she died young, and then her sister, her half-sister Elizabeth, who was Protestant, became queen. And Elizabeth undid um, the return to Catholicism that Mary had um, demanded and instigated. Um, Mary had burned people at the stake, so Elizabeth did the same. Um, and um, then Elizabeth is queen for the next 45 years, which is a really, really long time period, but it's a really long time in um, the 16th century. Um, people, the average lifespan was 40. That's slightly misleading because that includes infant mortality. But even if you take infant mortality out of it, 45 years is like a whole lifetime. And so what that meant, as people pointed out um, at the time, was that when she died in 1603, something like 95% of the people in England never remembered a time when Elizabeth was not queen. So it's a gigantic event when Elizabeth dies. Um, there are only a very few people alive who remember a time when she wasn't queen. And most people, she was queen when they were born, as with Shakespeare. Um, she was already queen when they were born. So Elizabeth was strongly Protestant, and the Elizabethan settlement, as it's called, was essentially making England the Protestant country that it still is. And Elizabeth um, basically, or Elizabeth's church, outlawed Catholicism. Um, you couldn't be a Catholic in England. But there were Catholics. Of course there were. And so they were in touch with Catholics in France, Catholics across the English Channel. Um, there were priests who were sneaking around into England. Um, Scotland was, all, was also very strongly Protestant, more puritanical than England. Did you want to say something? Well, I, say, I mean, there was also a different but similar struggle up in Scotland because Mary Queen of Scots was Catholic. Yeah. And then it was... Uh, yeah. Semi-relevant. Yeah, Mary Queen of Scots, whom Elizabeth had executed. Um, was Catholic, and then um, irony of ironies, her son James the Sixth of Scotland, who is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, um, becomes James the First of England, and um, then that is the union of Scotland and England, or the beginning of a union between Scot Scotland and England, which may now be breaking up, um, because um, because the Scottish Parliament does not want to exit the European Union. Um, so at any rate, um, what happens is that Catholic advice to Catholic believers in England and in Scotland is you always have to tell the truth, but you can find very clever ways of telling the truth so that if you are interrogated by Protestant authorities, they will think that you're Protestant even though you're not. Um, and that was called equivocation. And the Protestant authorities got very upset about this because they always had to think, hmm, is there another meaning in what this person is saying when they were interrogating people? Um, so the idea of equivocation is a kind of theological idea that um, is 
in people's minds at the time, um, and in the mind of James I. So it turns out that punning, which is, again, what equivocation kind of is, it's a conceptual punning. It's a pun on the phrase, none of woman born. It's not like a, ha ha, that's so funny, um, because, it, because the word can mean two things. Um, it's not like um, time flies like an arrow, fruit, fruit flies, flies like, a like a banana. It's not my joke, it's Tommy's. <laughs> I apologize, I just knew. <laughs> Does everyone know that? Yeah. So it's like, eh, fruit fly says, I like a banana. So, Drosophila, bio majors, fruit flies? No? Yeah, okay. They really like bananas. So fruit flies, they like a banana. So it's not that fruit flies across the room like a banana. It's fruit flies, they like bananas. Time flies like an arrow, because time just flies. That's a pun. Okay. It's not that kind of equivocation. Um, but equivocation, because there's, it's not as though there's a joke um, on the word born or on the word woman in none of woman born, um, but there is a joke on the possible meaning of that. Yeah? Also, wouldn't like fruit flies like a banana not be an equivocation because you're trying to get the other person to see the double meaning? Yeah, but the way puns always work is that at first they don't see it and they don't think there's, that there's an equivocation there and then they do. Um, and it's when they do that there's a sort of flash of insight. And so um, that's what Macbeth has at the end of Macbeth is a flash of insight. Um, that is that he had mistaken something whose meaning seemed clear to him but now he realizes that the meaning was the opposite of what he thought it was. Um, okay, so what we're going to do, just to, to give you uh, a basic idea of this class, is um, we'll be reading um, a total of ten acts um, in two plays, so five acts each. Um, that means that we're going to kind of try to do about an act a week, um, maybe a little bit slower, um, and um, we'll also, you know, it would be good, um, so I'll just make an official assignment, um, but I'm not naive, um, but it would be good if you were to, like, read Macbeth for um, our next meeting on Friday, um, or at least by next um, Tuesday, and just so you have the whole play in mind. Um, but we'll be talking about an act a week, and then we'll also be reading... Sources. So we're going to be reading a couple of sources for Macbeth. Um, do people know who Hollinshead is? So Hollinshead was... Um, Shakespeare used several history books for all his history plays. Um, Hollinshead was the most common one that he would use. It was, it was um, a book of English history uh, that he read obsessively and got lots of ideas from and lots of plots from. So we'll be reading what Hollinshead has to say about Macbeth, but also some other um, historical accounts of, of Macbeth. I'll put those on Latte, um, as well as um, some stuff that James I had to say about witches. Um, so James I was fascinated by witches. He used to go to witch trials in Scotland when he was king in Scotland. Um, he wrote about, he would talk to the women accused of being witches, and he would question them. And some of them thought they were witches. That is, that, that um, um, uh, 
they weren't treated as unfairly as our president, um, who has pointed out that he's treated much more unfairly than women who were who were made the subjects of witch hunts. Um, and um, sorry, constantly, constantly. Um, so we will um, look at some of the uh, some of James's interests in witches. Um, James wrote a book about it, which Shakespeare read before he wrote Macbeth. So one of the ways that Macbeth is a Valentine to James is it's referring to um, books that James to a book that James has written about witches. And then we'll read some of the romantic um, essays on Macbeth, and then some um, pretty amazing, uh, more or less contemporary twentieth and twenty first century. Um, essays on Macbeth. We'll be doing more or less the same thing when we do and in Cleopatra. And um, the um, what your assignment, if you're taking this for undergraduate credit, um, if you're auditing, you have to write twice as much. Um, but if you're taking this for undergraduate credit, um, you'll be writing basically a 1,500-word um, essay on each play. Um, and um, in the Anne and Cleopatra essay, you can refer to Macbeth, so it can be Anne and Cleopatra plus Macbeth if you want it to be, um, but it needn't be. Um, if you guys are like looking like you're not doing the reading or paying attention, then there may be quizzes to um, encourage you. Um, but right now I'm not anticipating um, any such thing, no final exam. Um, so that's that's the nuts and bolts of the class. Um, yeah, Matt. Um, Matt, not Matthew. Oh. Matt. <laughs> that's gonna be hard. Um, no, no, Matthew. Matt. Exactly. <laughs> um, is there a specific version of the plays you want us to get, or if we have something like this? You can, yeah. Um, you can you can get away with any decent Shakespeare with notes, which the Riverside is, which the Norton is. I ordered because I think it's really really good. I ordered the Arden editions of both plays, and those are great editions, and um, I think they're worth having. Um, but if it's an issue for you, I think Macbeth, but not um, not Anne and Cleopatra. That's that's fine. Uh, I think Macbeth, but not Anne and Cleopatra, is the Arden edition is available on Kindle, um, and the Kindle version isn't expensive. Um, but um, yeah, so the we have time. Don't put your stuff away yet. We're just starting. We're just getting to know each other. It's nice. Um, be large in mirth. Anyone? Yes. Be large in mirth. Okay, you have three guesses what play it's from. Okay, well, we're just talking about Macbeth, so is it from that? It is! Whoa, got it in one! Yes. Yeah. Is it the What? Is it the banquets? Yes! There we go, we make a good scene. You do. When we're not arguing about cats. Um, <laughs> it's possible that we'll watch um, versions of each. I think the Patrick Stewart Macbeth is great. And um, I, I actually saw it twice on stage. Um, and they don't quite do the same thing in the video as they do in the stage version. Um, I'm not sure that there's a great video version of Annie Cleopatra, but the BBC one from the 1970s is pretty good. Um, so we may watch those also. I kind of hesitate to watch only one version of a Shakespeare play because then it becomes canon for whoever's watching it. And there's a problem with all of them. Um, but Patrick Stewart as Macbeth is pretty good, and the way he, there are these people sitting at the table, 
um, terrified because this madman is king, um, this unstable genius is king of Scotland, and um, he's going around and they're just all nervous, and he just gives them the command, be large in mirth. Um, just imagine Patrick Stewart saying that, make it so, be large in mirth. Um, and so they're supposed to be having a good time, but being told you're supposed to be having a good time or you're going to be executed uh, doesn't work that well. Um, so yeah, that's the banquet scene. Um, so as I say, we'll read some, um, some pretty great contemporary um, stuff on Macbeth as well. Um, the main thing to think about of many, 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 many things that we'll be thinking about, but the main thing to be thinking about is that what we're doing is um, reading these plays, as I say, written simultaneously, both of which are about power couples. Um, that is, there is Anne and Cleopatra, and Cleopatra makes it into the title, um, one of um, several plays by Shakespeare that have two, na two named tragedies, Troilus and Cressida, um, ending Cleopatra, Romeo and Juliet. Um, and then Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Um, it could almost be the case that, you know, the play that Shakespeare wrote before Macbeth is King Lear. It's not just Lear, it's King Lear. But this is not King Macbeth. And it could almost be the case, um, Shakespeare wouldn't have thought about it this way, but he almost would have, and we can think that Macbeth uh, applies, that the name applies to both Lord Macbeth or um, King Macbeth or Macbeth Thane of Cawdor and Lady Macbeth. That is that the name applies to both of them. And if you think of it that way, you see the connection um, still more fully. The tightness of the relationship between the Macbeths, the way they know each other, the fact that that relationship is a relationship between older people, people who have been together, have been married for a long time, and the tightness of the relationship between Antony and Cleopatra um, again, people who know each other, know each other really well. That's something that Shakespeare is thinking through in both plays. Even though their relationships are very, very different from each other, uh, they, there is this common ground of tightness between them. Um, and that's something we'll be looking at, too. Uh, there's a famous essay of Macbeth's, um, uh, sorry, on Macbeth, called How Many Children Had Lady Macbeth? Uh, anyone know why that's an interesting question or why it's not an interesting question? Remind me your name. Um, I'm Grace. Grace. Um, because like in the play, like they don't seem to have any children, but Lady Macbeth does talk about like having a child and breastfeeding. Yes. So presumably they had at least one child who died. Yeah, she says, I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the lad that milks me. So it sounds like she's been a mother. Yeah. Isn't there also like a scene in which they hear, some, like she hears a baby crying, mm -hmm. there's none in there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and it's sort of interesting because um, the Macduff kid is also killed. And yes. It's an interesting sort of like mirroring of what <coughs> We don't know what happened to the Macduff's kid. But. Yeah, good. Yeah. Is it used uh, for something irrelevant? Sorry? It's used sometimes for something that's irrelevant. I mean, who knows? Yeah, uh, yeah. how many children? It's now, it's, that, that title is used as 
Um, it's, it, it makes no difference to the play. Um, and it's just a silly question. You're, you're getting um, lost in the weeds rather than in the dark woods of extravagance. Uh, Grace and then E. I think one of, also one of the apparitions that Macbeth sees is also like a child. Yes. All right, and you haven't read it, right? I've read some of it. I okay. haven't read the whole thing. All right. Okay, E. <laughs> oh, um. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, some of the history might give an answer to that question. Um, and, in fact, I think there is an answer uh, to how many children she had. So the guy who wrote the essay, his name is Elsie Knights. Um, well, it's a good essay. Um, all right, so see you guys Friday. Yeah. Um, I think that they are now for the next hour and then Friday before class. But I have to set up a couple of independent studies so that may change. In your office? Is RAB 138? Okay. 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 Okay.